Welcome to the latest tablet podcast. My name is Ruth Gledhill and I'm the online editor. And today we are lucky to have with us Mary McAleese, the former president of Ireland, whose memoir, Here's the Story, has just been published. Mary, what does the book say? What does it say? <laughs> 400 pages of stuff, how much time do you have? But anyway, the, I'll tell you what uh, the, the, the idea of it is. I mean, it's not a full biography. It's a memoir that um, tries to explain the background to why when I became president of Ireland, um, I adopted as my theme building bridges um, to tell the story of growing up in Belfast in a violently sectarian area um, uh, in North Belfast called Ardoin, which had the highest incidence of sectarian killings, um, where my family um, was, uh, we lost our home uh, because we were Catholic. Uh, my uh, brother, sister, father, all attacked in separate attacks, the house attacked um, with bricks and then subsequently with machine guns, our neighbours killed. Um, it tells the story of on the day of my wedding, um, how two of my favourite people who were my neighbours, uh, I'm the oldest of nine, and they were um, among, they were the younger of, of a family of 13 who lived close by. And uh, they were the older brothers I always wanted, and they were happy to supply that, um, that lacuna in my life. And they were murdered on the morning of my wedding uh, by, again, by uh, Protestant loyalist paramilitaries. Uh, they were um, shot and then their bodies burnt, um, which is not, as you can imagine, how you want to remember your wedding day. So um, it, tell, it tells all those stories um, and many more, um, including the fact that I always, although I was a Catholic growing up in what is regarded erroneous, very often as a Catholic ghetto, I never grew up in a Catholic area. I grew up among Protestants always and my best friends and my uh, pals that I chummed around with, even though we went to different schools and different churches, uh, they were Protestants. The people that my father employed uh, in our home were Protestant. Uh, when we moved, uh, when we had to move um, and moved to a small, quiet, mainly Catholic village, again, my father employed a Protestant barman. He always did the thing that was designed to be inclusive and to set a different agenda from what was going on around us. Um, so I tell that story of growing up as a set-class citizen by virtue of being a Catholic in um, an elitist Protestant hegemony that was deliberately created, of course, um, uh, in the early 1920s when uh, the British government partitioned Ireland to create what they um, essentially, uh, to create a northern enclave that would protect uh, the, the sons and daughters of the um, English and Scottish planters who had come many centuries before. Um, rather than trying to create a, um, you know, a jurisdiction that would embrace everybody. So um, I was part of a Catholic minority that was marooned there, essentially, you know, cut off from its natural organic hinterland. Ireland had never, ever been partitioned before, even though it had been um, colonised, but it had never been partitioned. So we, um, we grew up with that, knowing we were um, excluded from politics, excluded from jobs, excluded from homes, um, excluded from the police force, excluded from uh, legislation. Um, and in many ways, we were, we, we were the second class citizens. I also grew up understanding eventually that within my own church, um, uh, the, the church into which I was baptized, the Catholic church, I was also a second class citizen there. 
So it was a, uh, it was a, an interesting, put it that way, a very interesting um, cradling to use um, uh, a wonderful word um, uh, by uh, an Irishman who spent many years in captivity um, in Lebanon. And he wrote a wonderful book called An Evil Cradling. And he grew up in the Protestant tradition. I grew up in the Catholic tradition. And I would say that the reason I committed myself to building bridges was because the cradling that we received um, in you know, the growing up, the formation, the atmosphere, the poison in the atmosphere, created huge problems in terms of uh, relationships between neighbours, uh, uh, huge um, gaps in understanding that in, through and in which mutual contempt grew. And uh, so some people, of course, um, faced with that reality, decided the best thing to do was to join paramilitary organizations and to fight. Some people went into politics. I went into law. But I also decided when I had the chance to become president of the Republic of Ireland that I would commit myself to trying to do whatever I could in that special space that is occupied by the presidency, which is a quasi-pastoral role, really, in many ways, um, that I would use that to try and, um, well, to, to quote a very famous Irish poet, a Northern Irish poet called John Hewitt, I would help to fill the centuries' arrears. And those arrears um, existed between Catholics and Protestants in the North, that is, people who um, had a British identity and those who had an Irish identity. It existed in the, um, the estrangement between the Protestant people of Northern Ireland from their neighbours south of the border in the Republic of Ireland, and it existed in the relationship between um, Dublin and Westminster. So all those, you know, all those relationships had to be healed. And really, the memoir tells the story of um, why I came to the conclusions that I did about how that could be healed, how they could be healed. And then what I was able to do when I became president and worked for the 14 years to, um, to build a culture of good neighbourliness, simple good neighbourliness, not a proselytising culture, because unfortunately... That's one of the characteristics of Northern Ireland um, is the, um, the proselytizing nature um, of engagement. You know, I'll be friendly with you if you become me. That's, I don't think that's uh, what the gospel calls us to do. I think it calls us to acceptance of each other where we're at um, and um, respect each other's uh, perspectives and ambitions and stances. So I, I just set out to create a culture of good neighborliness and I wanted to explain that while the notion of building bridges sounds like a rather trite phrase, it actually had huge, profound underpinnings and, I hope, outcomes. So just to step back a little bit, when you were a young woman or a young girl and you were becoming aware of some of these issues around you and in your life and how unusual it was in, the, in a global context, how did you survive it how did you not go under well nobody killed me for a start that was the first thing and that could have happened at any time because certainly you know there were people who uh, would have liked to see you know um, a family with nine children in catholic uniforms going in and out of a protestant area they would like to have seen us you know all dead and they tried their best to kill us um so um yes um how, so so they didn't succeed that's the first thing i just managed to stay alive and keep breathing and keep going um, and then I can't explain what spirit 
um, it is inside me that drives me. Um, I think possibly, I think I do think upbringing matters. Um, my parents uh, were both left school early. My mother left school at 15 to become a hairdresser. My father at 14 left his home in the West, small, tiny farm in the west of Ireland with his first pair of shoes um, to become a barman, apprentice barman in Belfast. And um, they, they both wanted for their children, when they saw the advent of free second level education um, arrive um, in Northern Ireland, and with it, the prospect of third level education, um, they really wanted their children to be beneficiaries of that, to be whatever they wanted to be. Not in any pushy way, they were the least pushy of parents imaginable, but um, they wanted us to understand that our life's chances were different from theirs. And they also wanted to inculcate into us values of openness, egalitarianism, equality. And so um, I was early on introduced to my great hero, Daniel O'Connell, um, the Westminster MP, the Irish Westminster MP, um, who introduced, essentially, uh, introduced the notion of democracy and human rights to a very reluctant Westminster Parliament in the early part of the 19th century. And, um, and also to St. Thomas More, who's a great hero in our house also. And, um, and I, think, I think that and, and the, the upbringing that um, led me to, to, to a realistic view of Irish history, yes, and the baleful role that the United Kingdom and the uh, British Empire had played in that, but without inculcating hatred um, and inculcating a view that maybe, just maybe, um, I and my generation, who were given such great opportunities, that we could ring the changes, but without, without resorting to violence, as some, unfortunately, of our generation did. Yes. So um, what part, if any, did the church play in developing your resilience or in helping well, you? Well, I think faith did, Ruth. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in a very, um, you know, a very sort of traditional Catholic household. Uh, we lived close to the chapel. Um, and in fact, we lived so close to it, ironically, in a Protestant area, uh, the, the near, the, we were probably one of the nearest families to the chapel and uh, to its back door. And we had a key to that back door, as a number of Catholic families on that road did. Um, so uh, the chapel was really a, a, a huge centre point of our lives. We're, you know, you're talking about life, you know, before television, before social media, also to before the educational opportunities that really um, uh, uh, mushroomed and blossomed um, from my generation onwards. And so the chapel was everything. And also we were, a, you know, we were the oppressed people. We were the second class citizens. And so our faith and our hope lay very often in prayer and in the belief that, you know, that uh, prayer could help us through. Um, after all, we had uh, we were living in an environment which was hostile to us, a police force that was essentially an anti-Catholic force, you know, 90, whatever, 94 percent Protestant and essentially a Protestant militia. The B-Specials, you know, a, um, an auxiliary police force, uh, horrendously anti-Catholic, um, a legislative system and a judiciary that did not represent the community we came from, um, a political system that was inimical to us and despised us. And also despised our ambition to have our island um, unpartitioned, you know, to be reconciled and reunited um, and made us feel that even holding that ambition made us subversive in some way. So, yeah, 
look, the chapel became the place and space where we could open up to a landscape of hope, of prayer, of faith in a loving God. Um, also, I think, too, of forgiveness, um, because there was, a lot, there was a lot going on that we needed to forgive. And, um, and I think, too, um, you know, there was so much, you know, we, we went, we did everything. Everything that, you know, on a weekly basis, if you were to count up the number of hours that were involved in life around the chapel, it would be quite substantial, you know, novenas, confraternities, Legion of Mary, um, St. Vincent de Paul, um, all these things, uh, mother's meetings that my mother would have gone to, um, uh, and mass, of course, and devotions. Um, that was um, a really big, and, and then, you know, retreats and missions. These were a big, big, part of our early formation along with you know weekly confession um daily mass particularly during lent um and and in our case because i lived close to the, the chapel should i say i also should say was a monastery um or they had a monastery attached to it and when i was quite young there were over 40 priests there imagine that in you know in one small parish and they carved the parish up into quite small units so that we saw our parish priest, I mean, he was in our house two or three times a week. Um, so, and not Amazing. just him, um, because my parents were country people, they weren't city people. My mother was from, uh, her people are sheep farmers from the, um, just north of the Mourne Mountains. My father's, were, my father's people were uh, subsistence farmers from uh, Roscommon, where I now live in the west of Ireland. And so, um, Anybody, you know, who came to Belfast, particularly visiting priests and Christian brothers um, and all sorts of people from, you know, would, would ramble into our house. And uh, it was kind of open season in many ways because uh, we always tended to, well, for the most of our lives, we lived on a main road. So we were very accessible. Um, so we had lots and lots of priests in and out of the house. Um, and and mm -hmm. those priests, of course, um, took regular opportunities to engage in what I might call fraternal correction. Um, <laughs> and so we were well aware that, you know, that we were under, we were under the rule of thumb, you know, of, of empire and call it colonialization and Protestant hegemony in the, you know, in the secular politics. And we were also under uh, the rule of canon law um, uh, in the, as members of the Catholic church. So Every, the church was everything in our lives growing up. Probably is no exaggeration to say that. We lived behind the chapel. We went to daily mass, confraternity, confession, devotions, Legion of Mary, St. Vincent de Paul, um, missions, retreat. Um, my brothers were altar boys. Of course, there was no question of girls being on the altar then in those days. But um, somewhere, and, and we went to Catholic school, uh, Catholic schools. So somewhere in all of that um given that we came from you know prayerful parents and prayerful grandparents um i learned about prayer i learned about christ i learned about a christian and loving god i learned about the idea of god and um i fell in love with that idea i've never lost that um that love for that idea of god i and i particularly loved the whole story of you know the nativity um I, I, you know, I, I was broken hearted by the crucifixion, but, um, but galvanized by the idea of somebody sacrificing so much that I could live. Um, I loved all of that. And in particular, 
Um, growing up, I loved all the music associated um, with, I think, one of the great things about the Christian churches and in, about the story of Christ, actually, is the absolutely wonderful landscape of music, of poetry, of art, of writing um, that um, was always available to us. And so somewhere in all of that, there distilled in me um, a very strong prayer life, which has never, ever left me. Um, but of course, um, the church also meant uh, clerical power. Um, our, I, there were 40 priests in the monastery that I lived beside, and each of them carved up a, had a small, the, the parish was carved into small sections. And so we had a priest who visited us maybe two, three times a week. Um, other priests dropped in and out very regularly. Um, we, uh, and we also knew, of course, um, that there was a power relationship here, that often they would come and yes, there would be happy conversations, but occasionally you were aware of fraternal correction. Like, for example, you know, when my mother, after her 11th pregnancy, when she was very, very ill, um, after my youngest brother Clement was born, um, and she needed a hysterectomy and the Catholic doctor um, couldn't help her and she had to go to a Protestant doctor and stay at hospital and when she came home and she was, I can still remember her, she was the colour of paste um, and so ill and, um, and our parish priest um, came into the house in a rage and a temper that she had dared to have the operation while she was then only 38 years of age and she was still of childbearing age. I'd never heard that phrase before. I heard it from him for the first time. And he castigated her and my father that they had that they'd gone ahead with this operation without seeking his permission. So, wow. you know, I was well aware of that power relationship. And then it, I began, of course, to understand that it was visited um, in a very special way upon women. Uh, the exclusion of women and the exclusion of the voices of women and the experience and the spirituality and the ideas and the genius and the power of women all, you know, all corralled uh, by the church uh, into essentially the domestic sphere from which we were never supposed to escape. Um, and so um, little by little, um, I was already growing in awareness. I think my first letter of protest to a bishop, I wrote to the Bishop of Down and Connor when I was about 16. Um, and uh, so I'd always had that, you know, that slightly protesting or protestant side. Um, you can blame my, you know, my, my, my Scots Presbyterian great grandfather for that, I suppose. And, um, and also my Balshi aunties, you know, uh, my mum, my mum's one of 11 and they were a Balshi enough bunch. Um, and uh, between them, incidentally, they have 60 children, six zero, um, which My was goodness. rather a lot, you know, when you're putting on the kettle in our house. And because um, they all seem to arrive at the one time. And um, so, look, uh, the church was it. The church was a big, a big part of my life. But and I'm grateful for the formation that I got in prayer and in, and in an introduction to the idea of a loving God, a God who wanted us to be one family at peace. And a, a God who, um, who told us that love, by, don't, by which I don't mean something mushy, I mean some, a really strong discipline of parity of esteem, of respect and of tolerance for each other, that that could heal what we had made raw and wounded through our human vanities. So all of that always appealed to me. And then, of course, we entered the dark days um, 
which many of us had already experienced. I mean, I went to a convent school where we were routinely beaten by a, a batty head mistress, you know, who was really half mad. She's long dead now, of course, so I can say these things. But um, uh, she, she was batty and um, very wicked. That is not to say all of the teachers were quite the reverse. They, many of them suffered from her battiness, um, as we children did. But from her, there was no sense of a loving God, where there was from some of our teachers. And I'm always grateful for that. Um, but there was no, you know, the softness and the gentleness and the tolerance and the love of other religions and the openness to the great, you know, other Abrahamic faiths. There was none of that. Absolutely none of that, which is a pity. Um, I think, you know, that we were kept inside a rather um, hermetically seemed bunker, Catholic bunker, um, until some of us escaped and discovered there was a bigger world out there. Um, and there was a world to do with human rights and equal rights and equal opportunities and fair employment. And, and we entered that world and became, some of us, you know, advocates for it and champions of it. And we watched as our church didn't, and in particular, as our church leaders were left behind. They've no training. Not, I don't think any one of them was ever trained in equal opportunities or understands the idea of, you know, of the equality of the sexes. They haven't a clue. Um, uh, very evident, unfortunately, even this week with uh, Fratelli Tutti. Um, they haven't a clue. And, um, the, and so, uh, you know, the, I'm grateful that through the colander of life, um, a lot of things, good things, um, came through that through that that sieve or that colander um, from the church. But also, there were great big lumpy bits left. And then we saw the horrors of clerical child sex abuse, and we experienced the appalling betrayal because the church relies, the management of the church relies heavily on our trust in them. Well, we, I've lost trust in them. I just, I mean, as as a management team. You know, they, they, in any other business, they'd be out of business long ago. They're just so appalling. Um, I mean, they, they can't run even the basic finances of the church without getting into a terrible dither and mess. Um, and so um, I've, you know, I'm at the other end of my life now, you know, in my 70th year. Um, and uh, I really am just perplexed as to how this institution um, can possibly, can, at managerial level, um, can face the laity, you know, with a straight face, and in particular the female laity with a straight face, and the LGBTI laity with a straight face, because they're just so, they're such dunces, really. They really are. They're such awful dunces. How, how can you remain um, a committed Catholic, um, given all this, and, you know, we all, <laughs> the horrors of the abuse scandal, and you have rightly been one of the strongest critics of the church. You've always been incredibly brave in the way you've spoken out. Yeah, well, I, let's talk about who I criticise. I mean, I'm, I'm criticising church management. There's 1.2 billion of us, Ruth, and the church management is one tiny, but massively, massively influential, tiny, tiny, tiny little percentage of that. Um, you know, and the church management draws from only celibate, ordained males. So there's your first problem, that they are not drawing from the brightest and the best necessarily. Um, when I look at um, all the talent that exists within the 1.2 billion laity that goes unused, um, is not given the opportunity to blossom and flower in the church, and in particular, of course, the, the voices of women, the, the, the very distinct um, ideas and experiences of women, um, 
that's such a waste. We're, our, our church management structure is inordinately wasteful of the resources that God gave to it. You can take a very simple thing, Ruth, nowadays. Look at the number of churches and church buildings that one or two people are rattling around, paying enormous insurance, rates, heat, light, and you know, cleaning, uh, refurbishment, and keeping up to date. Um, to, no to no purpose, they're being run into the ground and nobody seems to have um, any sense that this is a scandal, that this is hugely wasteful because where did the money come from, you know, to sustain and build these places? Well, it came from ordinary lay people who, who trusted that that resource would be used well in order to develop a, a healthy church. And now it's developed a very unhealthy church um, that is burdened uh, with the baggage of these ridiculous um, massive vain projects, these massive buildings um, that are draining resources. At the same time, you know, as our Pope talks about the poor and outreach to the poor and, and castigates capitalism and castigates the world markets, I want to hear from him what he thinks the church needs to do. You know, he's, he's like so many popes before him, the encyclical gives him the Pope to speak out to the world and tell you know, um, and point his, you know, his cannon at the at the world and scatter um, complaints in all directions, and then he doesn't turn the cannon um, and his view back on the inside of the church and say, "Well, here's the witness that we are going to offer to the world." Not a word about that. Um, no, well, you, you you are a top canon lawyer, and of, of all the people on this earth at the moment, you must be one of the most qualified to analyse and understand the church from almost every perspective. And yet the they wouldn't even allow you in Rome, would <laughs> <No>. they? Despite, <laughs> despite this Pope's two predecessors having welcomed you Correct. there, this one wouldn't. What, what, what lay behind that incredible rebirth? Well, if I knew the answer to that, you know, I'd probably, I'd probably be dead and talk, having a conversation, hopefully, with God about it. Um, no, I've no idea. <laughs> I've no idea. Never, it was never explained to me. Um, Cardinal Farrell... Um, became the head of the dicastery for family, laity and life. Um, as you probably know, he was born and uh, reared in Ireland until he was about 19, I think, and then joined that dreadful, dreadful sect and cult called the Legionaries of Christ, um, uh, in which he was, um, um, you know, very close to um, that awful criminal, um, uh, Maciel, Father Maciel, one of the worst uh, criminals in the history of the Catholic Church. Um, but of course, protected by um, the money that he spread around the Curia in particular. Um, so he then, you know, he left the legionaries, he became a bishop, um, went up the greasy pole very quickly, um, strongly associated, of course, with Cardinal McCarrick, um, and seems to have, you know, had a, a stellar career. He, he goes to Rome, appointed by Francis. And he then took over a role of um, liaising with a, a group called Voices of Faith, who um, are a women's organization, an organization of Catholic women. And they had held three or four, I think, um, um, uh, conferences in the Vatican with full Vatican approval. And indeed the Vatican making great play of the fact that it was now really engaged with women um, and hosting, helping to host these, uh, these conferences. I was asked to be a panelist and um, the names were sent to Cardinal Farrell. He was dealing with this for the first time. There had never been a problem before. And he objected to three of the panelists, of whom I was one. 
uh, which seems ludicrous when you think of it, because he was also the person who was in charge of the Pope's visit to Ireland the, the following year. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> this is the country that he's coming to. I mean, it, it, you know, and I have been the president of it for 14 years. And uh, anyway, you can, you can just imagine um, that went down like a lead balloon. And um, uh, even our own bishop in Dublin, my own archbishop, who's a superb uh, church leader, he tried his best, you know, to explain uh, to, um, uh, I think, explain to those who'd made the decision that this was not the best idea they'd ever had. Um, and anyway, uh, the upshot was, of course, that I didn't, uh, I, I took no hand after part um, in the papal visit, except on the day that um, uh, the Pope um, was the, uh, was the uh, ghost guest of our government um, when um, our, our Taoiseach, a young gay um, son of an immigrant, an Indian immigrant, um, set the scene, you know, he welcomed him, said what we owed the church, but also spoke quite forcefully about a future relationship, which would be very, very different from the old confessional past. So I was very proud to be there that day, but I didn't attend any other event um, because uh, as a family, you know, I have a gay son, uh, we just felt so desperately excluded um, as a Catholic family. Uh, which is an awful thing to say, isn't it, um, about a church that I believe is about introducing us all to our common membership of one human family. Mm. And Farrell, of course, has just been appointed um, to a new commission that are concerned with um, confidentiality and economic activities in the church, mm. which is quite interesting. So, it's also, incidentally, um, Cardinal Farrell now was given the job by the Pope of looking after the issue of women, the development of women in the church, which is absolutely, you know, you have to have a sense of humour in the Catholic Church, Ruth, honestly, because so much of this is risible and laughable. I mean, I wrote and asked for an explanation from the Holy Father um, about why this had happened. Um, I, we had tried, incidentally, for months to deal with this very diplomatically, uh, knowing that it was going to backfire on the Pope egregiously, when he came to Ireland, and um, but um, we, I didn't even get, didn't even get, you know, the usual letter of acknowledgement. I mean, I all, I, I write reasonably often, um, raising issues, and I have to say, in fairness, um, over time you do get an acknowledgement and sometimes even a, um, a, an interesting answer. But on this occasion, I got nothing. Still got nothing because I, I, I reissued the letter a year later. I stay in the church, Ruth, um, for, a, for a variety of reasons, but one of them is we are 1.2 billion people. We are one in six people in the world. It is the biggest NGO in the world. It does phenomenal work through the hands and hearts of the people of God, mainly, you know, through very often through lay people, through their goodness and their kindness and generosity. So in many ways, it is um, a force for education, for healthcare, for charity, for concern for the poor, the migrant, for the climate, all those good things. But it also has a very dark side that needs to be redeemed. Otherwise, all of that good uh, begins to look like um, it's fading in the world. And that would be a pity, I believe. So the conduits um, down through, you know, the, the, the conduits 
through the centuries that carried anti-Semitism, that carried um, formidable anti-Semitism, formidable misogyny, formidable homophobia, those things can be, in my view, redeemed, and they will be redeemed by discourse and dialogue in the church. Um, sooner or later, uh, it will open up to that dialogue. Otherwise, um, otherwise, I, I, I don't see uh, a future for it in the West in particular. Um, and since the East and, the, and Africa relies so strongly, uh, that the growing church there rely, uh, relies so strongly on particularly financial transfers, and transfers of skill from the West, it's also, I think, even though it looks numerically strong, in fact, it's not really. And um, the big, big question that the, church, the management of the church has yet to face into is how is it going to come to terms with the human rights of its members, their, their entitlement to freedom of conscience, freedom of belief, freedom of opinion? How are they going to explain in the future that you can't take a child at baptism and impose obligations that are lifelong. You just can't do that. It runs counter to our understanding of human rights. So that is, these are dialogues that have to be phased into. That's the work that I'm doing at the moment. It's kind of opening up a new field that's uh, certainly not populated by a whole lot of people at the moment. Um, but, you know, um, I, I do it in faith. Um, I do it that I, in a sense, feel called to. And... Um, and that's that's why I stay because I think it's a, I think the faith that I was given I regard re really as a pearl of great price, um, and worth worth trying to um, worth trying to um, make the best that can be. It isn't at the moment to put it at its mildest um, when you look at the management structure, which is just too you know too awful for words. But then. Then I look at, you know, we've had uh, our, our referendum on same-sex marriage and the number of Catholics um, who voted in favour of that, contradicting their own church. Um, and I've never understood why they even bothered to get involved because we were talking about civil marriage. And you know yourself, you know, the Catholic Church's attitude to civil marriage between Catholics is that it lacks validity. So I don't even understand why they were in there in the first place. But, but we, you know, we, we contradicted and countered our church's arguments to, to allow the grace of God and love to flood our family life, to flood our community life, to include our brothers and sisters who were gay and whose lives have been lived in such wasted half-light, thanks very often to the church and its teaching. And I think that radiated a message upwards. I hear bishops now beginning to pick up on that. I hear bishops who champion women. I hear bishops who champion gay rights. That, that these are new times. And they are, I think, the signs of green shoots um, that may very well, you know, flower in the future. That's what I hope. I'll be long gone, but you know, at least I, you know, I'll have, I'll have uh, taken a, I'll have taken a hoe out to some of the, some of the weeds. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mary. Thank you for your generosity with your time. My pleasure. And that's a really to fantastic. To it's a really fantastic, upbeat way to end, and I look forward to the future, hoping it unfolds that way. Thank but let's you. hope. Let's hope. It's in the hands of God and us. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mary. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye.